Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Good afternoon. This afternoon and also uh, tomorrow in our second session in the afternoon. Well, it's, it's going to be evening, actually, isn't it? Um, I want to uh, get as far as we can uh, in this text, which comes from the Majjhimanakaya, so the middle-length discourses of the Buddha. Uh, in Pali, it's called the Kaya Gatasati Sutta, which means uh, mindfulness uh, directed to the body. And seeing that, uh, everyone in this room is exploring uh, physical yoga practice and uh, sitting meditation practice, I thought this would be a good uh, text to look at together because it explains in great detail uh, how to practice. And so I thought we could look at it line by line. So it begins with uh, the Buddha's right-hand man, Ananda, saying, this is after the Buddha's death, Ananda remembers the Buddha's teaching, and says, this is what I heard. And that, I always think, is a clever way of uh, not allowing fundamentalism. Because you could never say, this is what the Buddha said. But this is what Ananda heard that the Buddha said. It it kind of protects literalism, I think, in that Mm. tendency. Uh, Once, uh, Gotama, uh, Buddha, was staying in Anathapindika's park in the Jetta forest in Savati. After returning from their alms rounds and after a meal, a large number of monks were sitting together in the assembly hall. And talking, this occurred to them. Friends, how wonderful. Friends, how marvelous that the Buddha, who knows, who sees, who is worthy and fully awakened, has said that when developed and made much of, mindfulness directed to the body is of great fruit and great advantage. But the discussion was left unfinished. Uh, Who knows? Maybe they forgot anything else the Buddha had said. There are many suttas like that too, where a conversation starts and then they said, oh, well, we don't don't remember actually what the Buddha said. (laughs) And then it just stops. Uh, In the evening... Uh, the Buddha arose from seclusion, went to the assembly hall, and sat down on a designated seat. Having sat, he said to the monks and nuns, What are you discussing sitting here? What discussion 
was left unfinished from earlier in the day. And they say, here, after returning from our alms rounds and after the meal, we were sitting together this morning in the assembly hall, and we said to each other, friends, how wonderful, how marvelous, that the Buddha who knows, who sees, who is worthy, and so on, has said that when developed and made much of, mindfulness directed to the body is, is really worth it. It's not just a good idea, but there's some kind of great fruit uh, that comes from this. And in a way, this is a little bit like a coffee shop talk in Madison. S- somebody sitting at a coffee shop you sit down with might say, hey, I- I've heard this mindfulness thing is really big. Uh, it's really helping my golf. <laughs> and someone else might say, well, you know, it's really helping uh, this, uh, the, my, my mother's stress. She's doing an MBSR course. <coughs> and someone else say, hey, you know, I hear that all the neuroscientists in Madison are uh, studying this. Because actually, if you uh, link mindfulness and neuroscience, it attracts enormous amounts of research money, apparently. Especially if you live in this state. So anyways, that's the rumor. <laughs> um, so this conversation was left unfinished because that's what happens oh yeah I'm really into it and then that's it you don't hear much more about it and how monks is mindfulness directed to the body developed and made much of so as to bring great fruit great advantage so now the Buddha is going to give instructions so if you've ever wondered what's mindfulness or you've been reading all the scientific literature, uh, this is where it comes from. So here is the Buddha describing how you actually practice. And he says, Having gone to the wilderness, nobody ever does this. Most people, they go to a hospital (laughs) or a yoga studio. But that's actually something that we should not skip. Because the first thing the Buddha says, if you want to practice is you should go to the wilderness. Most of us, we practice indoors. Uh, but, But I think this is something to pay attention to. Having gone to the wilderness, a foot of a tree or an empty building, a monk or nun sits down with legs crossed and body erect, establishing mindfulness in the forefront, which probably means... Uh, in the belly or in the nostrils, sort of an awareness of the breath tends to be in the front of the body. Always attentive, she breathes in with mindfulness and breathes out with mindfulness. Breathing in long, she knows I'm breathing in long. Breathing out long, she knows I'm breathing out long. Breathing in short, she knows I'm breathing in short. Breathing out short, she knows I'm breathing out short. So, I usually translate this as if you're breathing in long, don't make it short. And if your breathing is shallow, don't make it long. So, when we notice our breathing, the instructions we were working with today is just to notice the breath in the nostrils. Was anybody able to do this? You'll notice at first that you can feel how the inhale is cool inside the nostrils and it's warm when it leaves the nostrils. But after a while, 
you might not even notice the breath inside the nostrils, but just right at the aperture of your nostrils. This happens over time, that eventually, as the breath starts to settle, you feel it more outside of your body than inside of your body. And as your mind gets quieter and quieter and quieter, your breath also gets quieter and quieter and quieter. And this is really fascinating, because maybe when our minds are so busy running around, we need more air. We literally need more oxygen. When we're worrying about the past or planning our future, our breathing is coarse. But when our minds start to settle, you can feel that as your nervous system settles, your breath also becomes more and more shallow and gets finer and finer and finer. And then it trails off. You, you can't even tell your breathing. The sensation so fine. And then as soon as you get distracted, the breath gets coarse again. And thankfully, because it's, then it's easy to find. Maybe this is why your breath gets coarse, because it's, it's so kind. When your breath is like, okay, well, I'm going to get coarse for you so you can find me again. Hello. <laughs> And then uh, you can give your attention back to the breath. So some people say uh, mindfulness is a mental practice. And I don't like the word mindfulness because it says mind first. But actually, as you start to practice it, you realize that mindfulness is a physical practice. Just like as you start to get deeper in yoga practice, you realize what is costumed as a physical practice is actually a deeply psychological practice. To work with patterns of sensation is incredibly psychological. But actually, to sit still is very, very physical. So, um, this is important because it's hard to work with your mind using your mind. This is called psychoanalysis. <laughs> Very expensive. So what we do is we work with the mind by just going to the other end of the stick, which is our breathing. And the first thing the Buddha is saying here about your breath is that if you want to be mindful of the body, it starts with breathing. And second, the most important thing is learning how to leave your breath alone. Because in a way, if you think of this sequentially, when you start having turbulent emotions or moods or repetitive thoughts, you're not going to be able to notice those thoughts as thoughts and let them come and go if you can't even work at a physical level letting your breath come and go. But there's a problem here. Because most of us, we don't trust our body enough to feel that breathing can happen independent of willpower. Right? This is science 101. Is that as soon as you notice something, you're going to mess with it. Right? As soon as you notice your breathing, you're going to... As soon as I say notice the beginning of your inhale, you've changed it. And this is something I find fascinating that when sensations arise, or images arise, or feelings arise, or the breath arises, the knowing of the breath is immediate. 
the knowing and the inhale happen together. But stories and emotions don't happen that way. It seems like when emotions arise, they're not in real time. We're at a distance from real time. So that's why the breath is so important, because the breath is in real time. But we're learning how to trust that the body knows how to breathe in real time, and that that's okay. And sometimes I feel like that whole process is like reparenting. Because when we're kids, we are never, um, we never have all our needs met perfectly. There are some kids who do. But in our culture, most kids don't have their needs met perfectly. And so sometimes when we have internal states of frustration, we don't know how to soothe ourselves. So then when we sit down, we try to feel our breath, but there's all this anxiety in the way, or this inability uh, to soothe ourselves. We don't know how to soothe ourselves. We don't know the right distance to approach anger. We don't know the right way to be friendly to anxiety. Uh, when sadness comes, we just want to get out of it as fast as possible. Because biologically, we just want to feel pleasure. And some of this is laid down when we're three years old or younger. So sometimes I feel like the first few years of meditative practice are like reparenting. It's like learning how to soothe yourself. Because if you don't know how to soothe yourself, then uh, you make all kinds of crazy decisions <laughs> in your life. Has anybody noticed this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's also a really bad for our environment. Because when you don't know how to take care of what you're feeling, you consume so much more than you need to consume. So maybe, in a way, ethics begins with meditation practice. Like maybe being a political person begins with being able to soothe yourself. Maybe being able to choose a, a lover who is going to be able to meet your needs uh, can only happen once you have a sense of who you are and what your needs really are. But you can't know what you need if you're running around all the time. And you, you can't actually feel what's going on in your life. So I think it's easy to look at this just as, oh, breathe in long, breathe in short. But something else is being said here, which is when the breath is long, just leave it alone. <laughs> it's a profound idea. Like imagine seeing a beautiful piece of land and just appreciating it. <laughs> Does anybody ever see a beautiful thing? Oh, I want that. I, I've got to buy that land. I've got to move to Wisconsin. <laughs> or maybe we should do this with other people. You see a beautiful person. And instead of just uh, saying, oh, I need to have that, or I need to be more like that, or I don't like them, because they're more beautiful than me. We can just learn how to appreciate what's actually happening, uh, to appreciate our life. 
So anyways, this is a very profound uh, instruction. Just breathing in the ceaseless wheel uh, of your life. She trains herself, breathing in, I experience the whole body. Breathing out, I experience the whole body. Breathing in, I calm bodily formation. So do you know what those are? <laughs> bodily formations. It's a, it, there's two things here. One is, as this is called shamatha. So as, as the breath settles, then sensations in the body also start to settle. So that's one way of thinking about bodily formations. But also the mind creates forms out of the body. So it's like you have a few bodies. You have the body that's actually occurring, and then you have the body that you create out of the sensations that are occurring. So for example, if you close your eyes when you're meditating and sensations arise, you say to yourself, sensations arising in the body. But then you might think, that's not true. Sensations are just arising in awareness. They're not actually arising in my body. My body is a linguistic superimposition on what's actually going on. Because there is no my body. There's just sensations are arising. And they're arising in awareness. And if you're not looking at your body, you have like a visual, which is never accurate. So that's why the Buddha uses this term, of the body in and of itself. In other words, feeling your body just as sensations, not as a particular kind of body. Like, what a relief. Because you have to go around all day performing being a woman. You have to move around all day being a man. That's so exhausting. <laughs> and, you know, most of the time you're not even performing those parts. You're just acting out something that was taught to you, that you've internalized about how to perform your gender. So what a relief when you sit down. No. <laughs> and you don't have to be a woman or a man anymore. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. It's so important uh, to know what it's like to be in your gender. But what a relief to have a break from having to be a particular height and weigh a particular amount and have a particular color skin and so on. It all falls away when you sit. So this is what the Buddha means by the body in and of itself. And I think I went into it more last time I was here, but um, there's a whole political side to this too, which is the Buddha's teaching men and women from different socioeconomic classes. And he's starting by saying, the body you've inherited is not important. And he actually calls his students Arya, which means a noble ones. So you're noble not by the family you're born into or the body type you have. You're noble uh, because of your practice. Last night I was calling this peacemaking. So anyways, by staying vigilant, ardent, and resolute, she gives up recollections and intentions dependent on household life. Does anybody have recollections and intentions related to household life? Yeah. But when you sit down, 
you don't give your focus to that. That's why it's so important if you're a parent to be able to uh, have a daily practice. Because otherwise, you can't see clearly. <laughs> because you're so caught up all the time in all the stuff you have to do and everything you did wrong. Everything you did do and everything you didn't do. And you know, you can never get it right. <laughs> the tail can't get through. Have you noticed this? Like, no matter what you do, you can never get it right. Uh, so then when you sit, if you just think about all the ways you didn't get it right, you're not meditating. <laughs> the mind becomes composed, settled, one-pointed, and concentrated. This is how a monk develops mindfulness directed to the body. Noticing how each breath begins and ends. Notice how each breath is different than the next breath. And it's interesting how the simplest things can lead to the deepest insights. Just the breath. No fMRI machine. <laughs> and then he says, well, guess what? You can do this in asana, postures. And then he lists all these postures. Like walking. <laughs> when you're walking, you can know that you're walking. I have a friend who uh, is studying at the San Francisco Zen Center. And he told me that uh, recently he was um, there to hear a talk by a, a Zen teacher there named Reb Anderson. And uh, so apparently Reb came in the room. Reb, if you've ever met Reb, he, he always he dresses so nice. His, his, every, his, his robes are always so perfectly ironed. And uh, anyways, apparently Reb was saying that he had woken up, got ready, got dressed, walked down to the temple to give his talk. And then halfway through his walk, he realized he hadn't been paying attention the whole time. He just got dressed <laughs> and walked to go give the talk, thinking about the talk. So he stopped, he went back to his room, he took off all his clothes, and he did it again. <laughs> he put on his clothes, he walked out the door, he closed the door, and then he walked mindfully to the talk. Do you ever get through like a whole week? <laughs> or maybe like eight or nine years? And you think, where have, have I been this whole time? Yeah, this is not my beautiful wife. <laughs> so paying attention to walking starts to show us that we're always practicing a yoga posture. You're never not in an asana. And if you look at your life as a sequence of yoga postures, you start to see that your body is never a fixed image. Your body is always a body in movement, and you can never see what that looks like. So your image can never catch up to your body, because you don't know what you look like walking from behind, or squatting, or picking something up. When standing, you know you're standing. When sitting, you know you're sitting. When lying down, you know you're lying down. Whatever way one's body is disposed, that is a yoga posture. 
by staying vigilant, ardent, and resolute, he gives up recollections and intentions dependent on household life. Having given them up, his mind becomes composed, settled, one-pointed, and concentrated. Then, that's not enough. When going forward and coming back, when looking toward or looking away, when bending or stretching. And I, I just want to add here, sometimes, if you're not used to reading a sutta like this, you might think, God, it's so repetitive. <laughs> like, who talks like this? You know? But it's actually an interesting method to read. This is from an oral tradition. Uh, to study this and notice wherever you get frustrated by the repetition and to come back to that also. Like I notice sometimes there are certain sentences I'm like, oh, I just want to skip these, you know. But usually that's the one that I need to read. <laughs> when holding his outer robe, upper robe and bowl, eating, drinking, chewing, tasting, urinating and defecating, Walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and remaining silent. Any questions so far? So feeling the breathing body in all these activities. What's that? Do all this to be mindful, that mindful? I yeah. So it's a training. Yeah. All day. Constantly managing your mind. Yeah. So that you can be awake. So the opposite of mindfulness is mindlessness. Right? Which is um, aggression, numbness, and going around in circles making decisions that are extremely self-centered. So, then the Buddha says, in addition, you should review your body upward from the soles of the feet and downward from the hair of the head, covered with skin and full of various kinds of unclean things. <laughs> so let's hear about all the unclean things. The crown of the head, there's 32 of them, body hair, nails, teeth. So this is a great, for those of you who teach mindfulness. Uh, do anybody here teach mindfulness? Yeah. So um, this is a great partner exercise. You get people to sit in partners and like do this, and then you really look closely at your partner's teeth especially after lunch. <laughs> and, and so at first you see what you think are the teeth. But then you look closer and closer and closer until you have no idea what you're looking at anymore. Or you do it with like, just look at some hair follicles. Just really look in your partner's hair and first, oh, beautiful hair, you know, and then you look a little closer and it's disgusting. <laughs> and then you look a little closer and it's gorgeous. And it just goes into... And it, you just keep looking at one thing over and over and over, and it just becomes so many things. Yeah. So the Buddha is saying here, do this with teeth, skin, flesh, tendons, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, pleura, 
spleen, lungs, large intestines, small intestines, contents of the stomach. Meditate on the contents of your stomach. Feces, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, skin, oil, saliva, mucus, joint fluid, and urine. Just as if a person with good eyesight were to look into a sack with an opening at each end, filled with various kinds of seeds such as fine rice, paddy rice, mung beans, garbanzo beans, sesame seeds, and husked rice, he would recognize this is fine rice, this is paddy rice, these are mung beans, these are garbanzo beans, these are sesame seeds. So a monk reviews this very body upwards from the soles of the feet and downward from the hair of the head, covered with skin and full of various kinds of unclean things. I don't know if I would add the unclean there, but it comes from a certain era. So anyways, um, what's the point? The point is, is when you look more closely at the body, you see that it's not one thing. And you see that we're always grasping at images. The ego loves images. And when you have an image, you make what's actually happening in your life into one thing. You frame it. And maybe this is the whole job of the ego function, is to create a theoretical self, which is a frame. Maybe the first job of the ego is just to create a context and say, oh, that's what that is. Frame the experience. This is very helpful because it's good to know, oh yeah, that's my toenail. <laughs> but the whole thing is all so very strange. For example, let's try this little exercise. You take your finger and you point it at your forehead. And then you point at your heart. And then your shoulder. And then your knee. And then your nose. And you just keep going around like this. You notice there's a certain point where you're pointing at yourself. But can you feel how, if you go off a centimeter, it doesn't feel like you're pointing at me. But there's a certain, just look at your finger. There's a certain point, and if you just get that point, it feels like you exist. <laughs> can you feel that? Yeah. So just try that. Like if you point at your eye, you probably don't get it. But it's like somewhere around your nose or your upper lip, can you feel that? What is that? That's so strange. <laughs> How is that constructed? You see? So this is all uh, hardwired, it seems. This sense of me. But the point of all this is not just uh, existential. The point is also to see that if you really look at impermanence, the body always changing, hairs changing, skins changing, there's aging. If you really look at impermanence, you start to see that clinging is futile. And that's the point of this, is you start to see that 
even in subtle moments of clinging, your breath gets labored. And then you just notice that and you let go. And you remember that when you let go. The cessation of clinging. And then you know the pleasure of letting go of clinging. And this is the punchline. Don't tell anybody. (laughs) But this is the key to having confidence in your practice. Is you start to see that the pleasure of letting go is greater than the pleasure you can get from the object. No matter how good the chocolate is. (laughs) No matter how good the sex is. No matter how good money is the pleasure of not grasping those things is deeper than the pleasure of those things. So it's not to say those things are less pleasurable. It's that those things are more pleasurable when there's less grasping. You see. And so grasping is the enemy of intimacy, the enemy of... um, Um, contentment. Can we keep going? Then the Buddha suggests that you should go to a... uh, We're going to skip the elements. That you should go to a charnel ground. When I first uh, studied... uh, the Dharma. Uh, one of the teachers I used to go study with is a guy named uh, Kempo Tsultrum. Uh He's really old. And uh, his favorite thing was taking people to uh, Disneyland. He wanted all his students <clears throat> to go on roller coasters. Uh, he loved this. This was his favorite thing. Uh, sometimes after retreats, he would take everyone to whatever place you could find a roller coaster and everyone would go on roller coasters. Anyways, uh, he grew up for uh, over 10 years living in a charnel ground. Mm. We don't have them here. Mm. But it's a place where you take bodies, the dead bodies, for them to dissolve back into the earth. And um, now we hide them uh, as best we can. But uh, he grew up uh, meditating on dead bodies, eating there, sleeping there uh, for over a decade. He had the best sense of humor, anyone I've ever met. He was constantly laughing, and he would often just break out into spontaneous songs, like Mila Repa. Anyways, um, he was a good person. So uh, traditionally what you should do is uh, you should go do these nine contemplations uh, in a charnel ground. So um, you would go look at a dead body, and you would meditate, I think, on the 14 stages of the decomposition of the body. Is when, you, when, when the body gets put on the ground, it looks like a body. And um, except the elements are leaving. So the heat is the first thing to go. The fire element is the first thing to go. When someone's dying and you're holding their hand, you can feel the fire element leaving their arms get really cold and all the heat goes uh, into the belly, to the abdomen and stays there. 
And then when they die, they get cold very, very fast. Like often people are so surprised how cold the body gets so quickly. And then the air element goes. So the wind also goes out of the body. The values go. And um, then uh, the body starts decomposing quickly. And uh, at the beginning, uh, it gets swollen, the Buddha says here, blue and festering. And when you look at a body that's blue and festering, you should say to yourself, me too. This is where I'm going also. And not like heavy, like, oh my God, I like really, I didn't write the novel. But just like, this body is also going that way. Now this is a strange thing, because the thing about leaving a body on the ground is that when you look at a body that's decomposing, it's actually more alive. (laughs) It's more alive than, we call it a dead body, but it's more alive. Eventually, maggots come from inside the body, outside. It's so weird. The body gets all swollen, and then maggots start coming out, eating the body from the inside to the outside. And when you look at that, it doesn't look, if you're a phenomenologist, you know, it's not a dead body. It's a living body, you see. It's more alive than when you were alive. So, it's kind of strange to think about. But this is important to think about. Because craving, uh, self-cherishing, is, uh, causes us so many problems. The Buddha says, you could look at a corpse cast away in a charnel ground, chewed by crows, vultures, or hawks, dogs, leopards, tigers, jackals. In other words, this thing that you think is you is food. (laughs) This body, too, you should say to yourself, has a nature like this, will become like this, will not avoid this. In addition, if you were to see a corpse cast away in a charnel ground reduced to a skeleton with some flesh and blood, held together by tendons, consider your own body. Your body is also like this. You will not avoid this. Now you might think, wow, he's really repetitive here. He's (laughs) trying to bring a a point. But um, maybe we should spend a month on each one of these and and have on our wall a photograph of a body in this state. And every day for one month you should study the image of a decomposing body. And after one month you switch to the next image. Maybe with birds pecking at the internal organs that have been opened up in the abdomen. Because, especially if you're a yoga practitioner, we're so into our bodies. Yeah. Yeah? It's so important to be embodied. But it's so important to see that this is not your body. It's your body. And it's not your body. And how do you hold both those things? So, this is what this section's aiming at.
Then a skeleton with blood but no flesh, also held together by tendons. They had an interesting idea of anatomy back then. (laughs) Then a skeleton without flesh or blood, held together by tendons. Consider your own body, that it has a nature like this, will become like this, will not avoid this. Then, scattered in all directions, here a hand bone. I'm in section six now. There, a foot bone. Here, a shin bone. There, a thigh bone. Here, a pelvis. There, a spine. Here, a jaw. There, a tooth. Here, a skull. So, he considers his own body. This body, too, has a nature like this, will become like this. I will not avoid this. Then, whitened, shell-colored bones. You know, this part's really interesting because uh, if any of you have ever done this or seen a body decomposing, uh, every day it starts looking more and more like the ground that's around it. It gets whiter. It turns the same color as the earth next to it as it dries out and decomposes. Eventually, it's not there anymore. It just becomes the earth. So when you die, you don't die. Because when you die, your body gets decomposed and uh, becomes life again. The worms make their way into your marrow and then they excrete feces. The whole earth gets turned over like this. And then somebody grows calendula in the feces. And then someone has tea in a tea shop in Madison. Calendula tea. Well, they don't even realize that that was like your grandmother. (laughs) And now you're having her in your tea. Yeah, it's so weird. So anyways. If you think about these things, you start to realize that when you die, uh, your body doesn't die. Your body keeps going. The only thing that dies is you. Fiction. The story we have. Glued together by craving, nostalgia, sentimentality, attachment. But then if you meditate on that, you start to see that you don't actually exist right now. You're creating yourself right now in this moment. You can see it happening. Watch in meditation how every time your attention goes off, it goes off in order to create a sense of self. So, watching something arising like a sensation in the body. Inhaling and exhaling, breath is predominant as the object of meditation. Breath gets quieter and quieter and quieter. A sensation arises. For the first few years, when you're meditating, the thing that you notice the most is the arising of things. The arising of sensation, the arising of an image, the arising of thought. But when you can get stable, And the way you get stable, by the way, is to relax. To get concentrated in meditation practice, 
You don't concentrate like a fighter pilot concentrates, like a racing car driver concentra concentrates. You concentrate by relaxing. So it's more like you go to a warm beach, you set up an orange umbrella, you sit under the umbrella, and you just watch the waves come in and go out. You watch the sensations change, the breath come and go. You feel this. But it's relaxed. It's not like really uptight, you know. Well, you joke, but actually, as soon as somebody says concentration, people get really kind of intense. But you have to go the other way. You have to relax. And then, when your attention starts to get stabilized, you start noticing not just the arising, but also the passing away. So you start to see a rising of sensation, you stay with it long enough, but then you see the passing away. And when you can stay with that, when something passes away, then, not always, is there a new thing to arise. So then, what you're aware of is awareness. So, you're aware of the object, but when it passes away, there's nothing there. So then you're aware of awareness, you see. And this is really, really important. So that it's like you begin to rest more in the natural state of the mind, which is contentless awareness. You see. And then, in those moments, you're not selfing. So then you don't need to breathe very much, because you're not creating yourself. And the experience of this, which we're going to explore tomorrow, is so relaxing. Because you have an experience of yourself where you're not creating yourself. Does this make sense? Yeah. yeah. And this is uh, why meditation becomes enjoyable. You'll see. Because we're so annoying. <laughs> Don't you find? We're constantly just wrecking everything. We think we're so clever. But everyone around us, we're just such a hassle to everyone around us. When we're not around and we're at a yoga workshop, it's such a relief for everybody. <laughs> like we're so worried that someone else is looking after our kids and they're so happy. <laughs> it's so true, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, you know, there's this place between North and South Korea where it's a no-person land. No humans can go there and haven't gone there for a long time now. And it has some of the most diverse flora on Earth <laughs> because nobody goes there. Everything's doing so great. <laughs> so, uh, we're human beings. We live in relationship. We swim in language. And we screw up. But how can we do this in a way where we're not making things worse all the time? So when you sit down, it's not the time to figure out your troubles. You sit down and you just watch the mechanism of the mind. Grasping, letting go. Grasping, letting go. And over time, you start to see 
that grasping is so much more exhausting than you ever thought. You can feel it in your body, what it's like to hold on. And if you do this every day, with some retreats sprinkled through your year, then uh, it starts to change how you move in your life. You stop making decisions based on grasping, not because you have a new religion, but you do it because you start to know what it feels like to hold on too tightly. And this is really important as you age, because we have an ideal that as you age, you just relax. <laughs> and you don't hold on to things so tight. Oh, but that's not true. So it's really important for us that we learn how to work with grasping. And you can use this meditation in sequence, or you can just catch the spirit of it, which is the Buddha trying a thousand different ways to say, when you feel your breath, just feel breathing. Don't mess with it. When you feel sadness, how can you feel sadness without adding sadness on top of sadness? When you feel joy, how can you just let there be joy without making it about you? So this is called a mystical experience, which is nothing other than the mundane present moment. But you go into the church, you have an experience of awe, and then you think, it must have been the stained glass windows, <laughs> and the architecture, and the incense. Or you get your hands on good LSD, and you go to the forest and you hug a tree for eight hours <laughs> and you really become one with nature. Cool. And then you think, well, that LSD was really good. But you completely missed that it has nothing to do with any of the conditions, you see. It's a mind state. And it's the experience of being free of grasping. And you have to work at it. Because all of us know somebody who did LSD and had an amazing mystical experience. And then, the next day, everything's the same again. <laughs> or, it scares the hell out of them, and nothing's ever the same again. But in both conditions, there's more work to do with it. So that's why we have a daily practice, and it's really mundane. You roll out of bed, and you sit there on your cushion and you hold on and you let go you hold on again and you let go and you do it again and again and again until waking up is a reflex and it's better than holding on the ratio changes and then we can have more intimacy in our lives with what's actually going on I know everybody thinks this is a good idea. This is such a good idea. 
<laughs> but it's actually a practice. So the last thing the Buddha says here, number nine. In addition, just as if you were to see a corpse cast away in a charnel ground, reduced to rotted bones crumbling to dust, so consider your own body. This body, too, has a nature like this. We'll become this. You won't avoid this. When I sit, when I get on my cushion, I always uh, think to myself that I'm not sitting. Like you don't sit when you meditate. Uh, It's the Buddha sitting. It doesn't work if you go to sit. Because then you feel like you have to go do something. And, oh, I've got to sit. Michael said we should sit. And I've got to get concentrated because I really want to be enlightened. But you don't get enlightened. You, 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 your sense of self can't get enlightened. <laughs> your sense of self can't meditate. If your sense of self is trying to meditate, then it's going to be really painful. Do you understand? So when you sit, you just, uh, it's the Buddha sitting. So when I work with kids, I always say, uh, don't sit on your cushion. Let the Buddha sit on your cushion. And the Buddha has very long ears. Has anybody ever noticed a Buddha <coughs> statue? Yeah. Buddha has really long ears. Mm-hmm. So I always say to teenagers, when I, when I work with teenagers, I always say, so when you sit, you should pull your ears down a little. Try, try this. This is really nice. You sit up tall, and you just very gently, you just make your earlobes a little longer. And most teenagers, they don't have to pull them down because they already have these big hoops <laughs> in their ears. So their earlobes are so big. That's why they're doing it. The whole hoop thing is because they want to look like Buddhas. Yeah. And also, the Buddha, um, he doesn't have a regular head. If it's a Thai or a Burmese Buddha, the head is a stupa. It's 12 finger lengths high. So you need to picture a mountain uh, growing out of your head. And I always say this to kids. I say, close your eyes. And if you sit really tall and you close your eyes and you listen carefully, you can hear a mountain growing up out of the top of your head. And, And if you pay attention, you can feel this. Because if you feel your breathing in your nostrils, you can feel your sits bones at the same time. And it's like a triangle. So that triangle just continues up. Right? From your sits bones, through your nostrils, all the way up. And then you can feel yourself sitting like a mountain. It's a lot easier to sit as a mountain than as a person. Oh, exhausting, being a person all the time. And um, they also say the Buddha has a body of light. 
So with little kids, I always get them to close their eyes and picture their inhale as bringing light into their body. Can you feel that? When you inhale, just to feel light. It's um, Saturday. It's 5.56. And we're in Madison, Wisconsin. That's Chanel. But actually, none of these things are true. It's not Saturday. <laughs> like, all these birds and all the flowers. It's not Saturday. They have no idea it's Saturday. The thought would never occur to them. <laughs> Today is Saturday. And 5.56 is also an absurd and very precise idea. So we have to go a little deeper than just being on the surface of things. And that's what the Buddha is saying here. Your body is not your body. It doesn't mean it's not your body. It means it's not the body you think is your body. You need to go deeper into your body to find the body in the body. We should be committed to this. You should be so committed to your marriage that you can find the marriage inside your marriage. You should be so committed to your heart that you can be, as I said last night, unconditional with yourself. Could you imagine this? You do something stupid and it's okay. You say something dumb, it's okay. You can do it different in the next moment because you're not the same person you were five minutes ago. But we carry around five minutes ago. But five minutes for whom? So, this is called mindfulness of the body. Apparently it's highly recommended <laughs> and uh, if you put this mindfulness of the body on the cover of a book, you will have a bestseller. <laughs> Nowadays, I highly recommend it. I think that is taken. Yeah. Um, what do you think about having a break uh, for ten minutes? Maybe we should all go outside and look at the non-human world and then come back in and be people again. So thank you. <laughs>